A city slicker was on a business trip. He was driving through the countryside when he accidentally ran his car into a ditch. About that time, a farmer and his horse trotted by. Well, the businessman, he asked the farmer if he could pull his car out of the ditch. He said that his horse, old buddy, he'd be happy to help. And so he hitched up old buddy to the car. Well, after fastening the harness and pulling it tight, the farmer yelled out. He said, pull, Nellie, pull. The horse didn't even flinch. Next, the farmer screamed, pull, Daisy, pull. Not a budge. Again, the farmer barked out, pull, Coco, pull. The horse just stood still. Finally, the farmer, you know, he, he spoke real softly. He just said, pull, buddy, pull. And immediately, old buddy pulled the car right out of the ditch. Of course, the stranger was astonished. You know, he was standing there scratching his head at the farmer's weird behavior. I mean, three times he called his horse by the wrong name. He finally he asked the farmer why. And the farmer replied, well, old buddy is blind, and he's got a lazy streak, and if he thought he was the only horse pulling, he wouldn't even have tried. <laughs> and this is the approach that the author of Hebrews is taking with his readers. He's encouraging these Jewish believers to walk by faith, and he wants them to know that they're not alone. Chapter 11 showed us how that all of Israel's heroes of faith, that they won God's approval not by works, but by faith. The author wants these Hebrews to know that they're not the first to have lived by faith. Chapter 12 begins, Therefore we also since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And of course, who are these witnesses? Obviously, it's the men and women of faith that were spoken of in chapter 11. Now, some folks interpret this verse to mean that people in heaven are looking down on us to sort of cheer us on, that the spirit of some dead saint may be looking over your shoulder. Not so. Trust me, citizens of heaven, they have far more to interest them than you and me. I mean, they're at the feet of Jesus. They're praising the King. They're enjoying the glories of God. No, the people of faith who have lived before us are witnesses, not because they're witnessing now, but because they have left behind a witness. The record of their lives, their memories, witness to us that it can be done. If they were able to hold fast in a fallen world, under the difficulties they faced, and we can too. It's an encouragement for us to believe, knowing that they have done so and prevailed. And in light of their witness, we're told, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. and Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here again, the Christian life is referred to as a race. This is a common analogy in the New Testament. The Christian life is like a foot race, but not a sprint. It's like a marathon. You know, some Christians are quick out of the blocks. They give their life to Jesus, and they're fired up to serve Him. But they don't make it through the first turn before they run out of steam. Hey, God isn't interested in flash-in-the-pan Christians. He wants us to run the race with endurance. Did you know that in Christopher Columbus's logbooks, there were days when his only entries were just two words, sailed on. 
That's all he wrote down. But I think this is the key to living the Christian life. Just keep sailing. Sail on. Press on. Keep at it. Never give up. You'll arrive at your destination only if you keep sailing. In fact, there's no telling what wonderful blessings and treasures you'll discover if you sail on. Now, we're to run our race with endurance. But if you've seen marathon runners, you know how they're dressed. I mean, you've never seen a competitive runner wearing a trench coat, have you? Or long pants or army boots. You would never see them with a backpack or with keys in their shorts. No, a racer gets rid of every weight, of all the excess baggage that's going to slow him down. In fact, his clothes are lightweight and wind-resistant. They're designed for the greatest range of motion. Did you know that Greek athletes actually competed naked? Every racer was literally a streaker. Athletes took every advantage. And the same should be said of us Christians, that we should lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us. Now the ensnaring sin is the specific sin that causes you the most trouble. You know, we're not all vulnerable to the same temptations. For one person, the snare that trips them up might be alcohol. For someone else, it could be anger or gossip or lust. But like an athlete shedding his warm-ups, we need to unsnap and we need to throw off that nagging sin. And you know what it is. Whatever it is, though, whatever it takes, you need to do it. You need to repent and tell God that you're willing to change. You need to rearrange what you can control to avoid falling into that trap. You need to renew your thoughts in that particular area of your life. And you need to recruit the Lord's help and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how you overcome an ensnaring sin. We need to shed the sins that trip us up. But in addition, we also need to lay aside every weight. You know, there are issues in life that are not necessarily sinful. There's nothing evil about them per se. But they still distract us from our goal. They're weights. They just drag us down. They divert our eyes from Jesus. They get us off into peripheral issues that are of no real value. I like how Ravi Zacharias defines a legitimate pleasure. Here's a legitimate pleasure. He says it's something that refreshes along the journey without distracting from your ultimate goal. I like legitimate pleasures. But a weight is just the opposite. It might refresh. It might produce pleasure. But in doing so, it becomes a distraction. It does knock you off your ultimate goal. Weights are unnecessary baggage. If you've ever traveled a lot, you know that the enjoyment of the trip is in direct proportion to how light you can pack. Try navigating an airport, lugging a lot of luggage, and it's torture. No, the key to living a victorious and Christian life is to downsize. Call away the fluff. Ask yourself, what activities, what commitments do I have, what pastimes do I participate in that suck up my energy, that siphon off resources that could be directed toward others and toward Jesus? Where do I invest time without gaining an eternal reward? When it comes to spiritual growth, what is it that's slowing me down and getting in my way? We need to find the weights in our lives and then lay them aside. 
if we're going to run our race with endurance. You see, here's how you walk by faith. You lay aside every weight and the ensnaring sins, and you keep on keeping on. You stay focused on Jesus. Notice verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. After reading all of the examples in chapter 11, we were impressed. But the greatest example of enduring faith by far was the faith of our Lord Jesus. He endured the cross. And you know the pain associated with the cross. The nails, the rejection, the scourging, the agony, the separation from his Father. He endured it all. At the same time, he despised the shame. The cross was designed for criminals, not the Son of God. But he didn't allow that to steal into the cross. And here's why he did it. It was for the joy set before him. This is amazing. Here's what motivated Jesus to go to the cross. The joy of pleasing God and the joy of seeing you saved. Can you imagine? Did you know that when Jesus hung there on the cross, he had you in mind? Faith enabled Jesus to press on, to keep his eyes on the joy ahead, not the pain around. Reminds me of a famous track meet that took place on August the 7th, 1954. The world's two best milers squared off in what was touted as the miracle mile. John Landy and Roger Bannister were neck and neck as the runners turned down the back stretch. Landy had a small lead, maybe a step or two. As they made the last turn, the crowd let out an enormous roar. Well, all of a sudden, Landy couldn't hear Bannister's foot striking the ground behind him. And it caused him to make a fatal mistake. John Landy turned his head to look back. And as soon as he did, Roger Bannister initiated his kick, passing Landy and eventually beating him by five yards. Hey, in the midst of a trial, a difficulty, a persecution, the worst mistake you can make is to look back. Keep your eyes ahead. Keep your eyes squarely on Jesus. Fix on the joy that will ultimately be yours if you follow Him. Notice verse 3. For consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Consider Jesus, He tells us. This is always good advice. In fact, this is the theme of the book of Hebrews. We've considered Jesus in multiple ways. His deity, His humanity, the rest that He gives, His priesthood, His sacrifice. But here we're encouraged to consider His endurance. You remember standing before an angry crowd of Jews. They were shouting at Him, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Let His blood be on us and on our children. Jesus was tortured and mocked and executed at the hands of a bloodthirsty mob. And yet he never gave up. He never gave in. Now, what is it that God has asked you to endure? (laughs) When we keep our eyes on Jesus, 
It'll give us the strength and the courage and the motivation to keep pressing ahead ourselves. The author reminds us in verse 4, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. I mean, the Hebrew believers, they were having a little pity party. They were sulking. Perhaps they'd been ostracized socially or maybe penalized financially. But no one had been brutalized physically, not like Jesus had. No one had been sawn in two or beheaded or nailed to a cross. The writer tells the church to keep it in perspective. Other people of faith have endured far more than they were being called on to endure and yet had still demonstrated great faith. They too can continue in their faith. And this should also be said of us. Well, some of us, we think we're candidates for martyrdom just because we're snubbed in the break room or not invited to the office party. We need to get a grip. The persecution we suffer here in America is trivial in comparison to what could be or what's been before. Notice verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. And here he quotes Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. You know, there's times when a dad needs to take his son to the woodshed. Discipline is necessary. The board of education needs to be applied to the seat of learning. And the same is true of our Heavenly Father. At times, His kids need to be spanked. You and I need to be spanked. Hey, you don't make disciples without discipline. Sometimes God disciplines us in corrective ways. You remember God corrected Jonah's path by turning him into a fish sandwich and redirecting him back to Nineveh. Discipline can also be directive. It steers us from going down the wrong path. It changes our direction. You remember Balaam would have taken a wrong fork in the road if the angel hadn't stopped his burrow. At other times, discipline is preventive. Remember Paul's thorn in the flesh kept him from getting the big head and becoming cocky. And finally, discipline is instructive. It can teach us new lessons about God and about life. You remember Job's hardships revealed truths about God that he could have only learned through those sufferings. See, here's the bottom line. When it comes to swats on the bottom, God is a good daddy who faithfully disciplines his kids when we need it. He corrects us and directs us, and he prevents us from going the wrong direction, and he instructs us in righteousness. So that verse 7 tells us, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. I mean, sometimes when hardships come, we feel that God has abandoned us. That He doesn't really love us. But do you realize the exact opposite is true? God's discipline is proof that He loves you. It's because he loves you. That's why he needs to spank you at times and bring correction. He says, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? 
You know, my dad always told, right before he spanked me, my dad always told me, son, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And I never believed him until I became a dad. And I realized it was true. A wise son who respects and submits to his dad's discipline is a wise, a wise young man. It's a fool who bucks. He says, For they indeed for a few days chasten us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I mean, ask a child three minutes after he's been spanked if he enjoyed it. <laughs> He'll tell you no way. But ask him 30 years after the spanking. He will have probably gained an appreciation. And so it is with God's discipline. The hardships and the pain he allows us to taste should be measured over the long term. It should be measured by the long term effect, not the immediate sting and discomfort. He then tells us in verse 12, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not, may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. In other words, don't get bent out of shape when God has to spank you. It means that you're his kid, that he loves you. And you'll survive. You'll survive, don't worry. It'll be for the good. Just don't you get bitter. Don't get bitter. For verse 14 tells us, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. You see, when God disciplines us, we need to guard our hearts against bitterness. Bitterness towards God, yes. But even more so, we're prone to become bitter toward the means of his discipline. The person or the situation that God uses to get our attention and to exact the discipline, that's where we can get bitter as well. Notice bitterness is the result of falling short of God's grace. For when you know grace... When you know the love you don't deserve, then you can't help but to show grace. If you know grace, you'll show grace. I have a friend of mine who struggled for years with bitter feelings toward the woman who murdered her mom. I would assume so. She thought that she had made progress in getting over her bitterness until she saw a woman at work one day who looked exactly like her mom's murderer. And the mere sight of this woman triggered all sorts of bitter feelings within her. To make matters worse, the woman's office was just four doors down, so she had to see her every day, several times in the day. My friend knew that she had to overcome her bitterness somehow. And so one day she approached the woman. The two women introduced themselves. And when my friend heard the woman's name, it stunned her. It was grace. Grace. And that's when the Holy Spirit spoke to her heart and told her that the key to overcoming bitter feelings is to recall God's grace toward her. 
You see, folks who know grace will show grace. When you realize all that God has chosen to forgive, to show us His love, then how can we withhold His love to others? From then on, whenever my friend saw grace, she was reminded of the power of God's amazing grace, even to overcome bitterness. Verse 16 tells us, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. It was Esau's resentment toward Jacob's thievery that made repentance impossible for him. You see, Esau was certainly a victim of Jacob's treachery. Jacob caught his big brother one day when he was famished and traded him a bowl of stew for his birthright. Later, Jacob conned his father into confirming the ruse, and Esau never got over his bitterness. To the day he died, he stewed over the stew. But here's the point. Bitterness is like an offensive lineman. Bitterness is a blocker. From then on, bitterness impeded God's work in Esau's life. And it will impede God's work in your life if you harbor it. As long as you're preoccupied with the other guy's crimes, you'll never be able to deal with your own. You can't repent before God when you resent someone else. We need to guard our hearts against bitterness. Bitterness is a blocker. And what's the antidote? Grace. God's grace. Well, in the last half of chapter 12, the author of Hebrews, he sort of sums up the theme of the entire book. Through Jesus, God has made a new covenant with his people that has replaced the old covenant that he made through Moses. A better way has been established for man to relate to God. And there's no reason now for these Jewish believers to ever retreat backwards to the confines of Judaism. Jesus is better than religion in every respect. And to illustrate the superiority of Jesus and the new covenant over Moses and the old covenant, the writer now compares the two mountains from which each of those covenants were given, were handed down. The old covenant, remember, it came from Mount Sinai in the wilderness, whereas the new covenant comes from Mount Zion or from heaven itself. Verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burn with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. When God met with his people at Mount Sinai, the manifestations of his presence were frightening. They were scary. They were terrifying. God wanted to communicate his holiness to his people. You see, to come to God is no trivial matter. Worshiping God is not like eating off the everyday dishes. 
It's like sitting down at a place setting of expensive china. In other words, worshiping God is a big deal. So much so that neither man nor beast was allowed to touch God's holy mountain or else they would be struck dead. The point being that under the old covenant, God was restricted. That there was no access, no assurance. That the people, even Moses himself, stood trembling before God. Under the old covenant, the Hebrews cried for a mediator. Someone that would approach God on their behalf. But even Moses was fearful to stand before the holy God. You look at how different. You look at Mount Sinai, but then you notice how different the attitude is under the new covenant. When you come to Mount Zion, verse 22. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Notice all of this speaks of openness and of access. Under the new covenant, we are registered as citizens in heaven. That's a far cry from trembling before the mountain, don't you think? We have membership. We can come to the city of God where men are made just and made perfect, where Jesus is the mediator and where we've been sprinkled by the perfect blood of Jesus, where we've been cleansed. Abel's blood cried out from the ground for vengeance, but the blood of Jesus cries out for forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation and peace and love. And it is the blood of Jesus that has washed us clean and saved our souls. How much better this mountain, Mount Zion, than Mount Sinai. And we've come to Mount Zion, not the old covenant, not the, not the old mountain, but to heaven itself through Jesus Christ. Verse 25 tells us, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, the ground literally rumbled under their feet. God's presence shook the mountain. No one was able to escape his voice and his authority. And the same is true for us today. God's voice still speaks under the new covenant. And no one can escape his overtures of love. If they couldn't escape the old covenant, don't think that you can escape the demands under the new covenant. He says, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now the old covenant began with a shaking. The ground trembled. Whereas the new covenant will end with a giant shaking. The new covenant culminates with a universal shakeup. Under the old covenant, one mountain shook, but as the age of grace concludes, the whole universe is going to get knocked off its foundations. The book of Revelation forecasts the cataclysmic judgments that will rock our world in the last days. Everything that is man-made will be destroyed. All that can be shaken will be shaken. When the smoke clears, all that will be left standing will be God, His truth, and the folks who have followed Jesus. 
The Bible tells us that in those days, continents will crack, ecosystems will shatter, mountains will split, buildings will buckle, governments will topple, financial markets will fold, even religious systems and traditions will be put out of business. All that can be shaken will be shaken. This is why it is foolish for you and I to trust in anything that's labeled made on earth. Don't trust it. Put your trust in God. Eleven millionaires went down with the Titanic. Did you know that? Eleven millionaires went down with the Titanic. One man that survived said he left $300,000 worth of money, jewelry, and securities in his cabin that sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Later he said, at the time, the money seemed a mockery. I picked up three oranges instead. Wow. Hey, when God rocks this world, man-made values and treasures will seem like a joke. We'll value other things. Verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, but which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. In other words, live for the oranges. You know, live for what's going to help your faith survive when the shaking comes. The chapter closes by reminding us, for our God is a consuming fire. We should know God hasn't changed. He is still holy and fiery and unapproachable on our own. But this, you see, the difference is that the terms of our relationship with Him have changed. For in Christ, rather than scorch us, the holy fire melts us and warms us and lights our path. In Christ, we have a new covenant with God that we hold on to by faith. Now, with the conclusion of chapter 12, the doctrinal section of the book of Hebrews ends. And in chapter 13, the author now deals with some practical matters. Verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. You see, all good things shouldn't come to an end, and especially brotherly love. Let brotherly love continue. And do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Wow. That's a pretty intriguing verse. Heard the story of Dodie. Dodie was a school teacher who drove across the country one summer. She was rounding a curve on I-5 just outside of Sacramento when her water pump blew. Dodie was alone. She was afraid, and so she prayed, Please, God, send me an angel, preferably one with some mechanical experience. Within four minutes, a big, burly guy on the back of a Harley-Davidson motorcycle pulled up. Guy had long hair, he had a black beard, he was covered in tattoos. And without looking at Dodie, he went to work on the car. She never even said a word. In fact, she said later she was too intimidated, especially when she read the words on the back of his jacket, Hales Angels, California. When the man finished, Dodie told him thanks, and she says that's when he looked me in the eye and he said, Don't judge a book by its cover. You may never know who you're talking to. 
And then he left as quickly as he'd come. An angel? Well, perhaps. The point of verse 2 is that you never know. Angels travel incognito. They don't wear signs around their neck saying, hey, I'm an angel. The hitchhiker, the clerk at the drive-thru, the custodian, better be nice. Even the hell's angel could actually be God's angel. Notice verse 3. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. You know, when you entered the Roman prison system, they shut the door behind you and they forgot that you exist. You didn't eat, you didn't have clothes, unless there were friends on the outside who came to your assistance. And likewise, there are believers tonight in countries hostile to the cause of Christ who've been jailed for their faith, who exist tonight in the worst possible conditions. We prayed for several earlier. They need our continued prayers and support. Notice verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The word translated bed can be rendered sexual intercourse. Hey, we should remember that sex is God's idea. He created sex, not Hugh Hefner. And he did so for pleasure, not just procreation. And to maximize and protect that pleasure, he restricted sexual intimacy to the marriage relationship. To one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant. Sex prior to marriage, fornication. Sex outside of marriage, adultery. These are deviations from God's design. And God will judge those who participate. But the marriage bed, we're told, is undefiled. Literally, it means it's pure. The marriage bed is pure. What goes on under the sheets is sweet in God's sight. He, please, he approves. He's pleasing of it. I think this verse implies that anything between a husband and a wife in the marriage bed... Anything done that's a loving act, that's a giving act, and that's an agreed-upon act is thus pleasing and acceptable to God. The marriage bed is undefiled. did a little research this week. According to WebMD, you know about WebMD on the Internet? Well, according to WebMD, if you want to relieve stress, lower your blood pressure, boost your immune system, burn some calories, reduce the risk of heart attack, improve your mood, relieve minor aches and pains, avoid prostate cancer, and even sleep better, you should have lots of sex. <laughs> Hebrews 13 verse 4 teaches you to just get married first, okay? Sexual intimacy is God's gift. It should be enjoyed. Verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Rather than breed resentment, learn contentment. Everyone today wants more, but the key to happiness is to want less. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you see, here's the secret to contentment. It's realizing that Jesus is enough. 
You can have the whole world without Jesus and it won't be enough. You can have Jesus and some pocket change and it'll be more than enough. There's not a need I have that Christ can't fulfill. He is all I need and He is always with me. He will never leave me or forsake me. And if you know Jesus in your life, if you're in Christ, you can have the same confidence. Verse 6, So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When God Almighty is for us, who can be against us? He says, Remember those who rule over you. In other words, pray for your spiritual leaders. Hey, I appreciate the encouragement and the notes you send my way. And I especially appreciate the paycheck I get every two weeks. But trust me, the very best thing you can do for your pastor is to pray for him. Pray for those who have spoken the word of God to you. See, here's the logic. Since he speaks to you on behalf of God, then you should speak to God on behalf of him. Pray for your pastor. The writer of Hebrews says of your pastor, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. A good leader will make mistakes. He's human. But overall, he'll have a good track record. His faith will follow. You'll see his faith in action. And when you see that he's following Jesus, it will be easier for you to follow him. Verse 8, never forget it. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means Jesus never changes. Hey, there are a lot of th- this world is full of change. It seems like every day we wake up, there's changes. I just got used to my new iPhone, and the other day I get a notice that I got to put a whole new operating system on it. Everything changes. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But let me qualify this statement. This doesn't mean that Jesus' ways and methods won't change over time. How and where and when the Lord works is always changing. You see, Jesus is always up to something new. This is why it's fun to follow Jesus. It's an adventure. And it requires us to be flexible and adaptable. What's immutable or changeless is Jesus' nature and the truth that he's taught us and his love and his faithfulness and his character. Jesus' intentions and motives never change. And in that sense, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's why we're told in verse 9, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. In other words, if Jesus never changes, then the truth he teaches never changes. God's truth is not a moving target. Sound doctrine is the same doctrine taught by Jesus, reiterated by Paul, and recorded in Scripture. Here's a helpful adage. If it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. The doctrines don't change. Jesus is the same. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. The legalism of Judaism. All of the different dietary regulations, the kosher kosher laws, these didn't really provide real forgiveness and real grace, and it didn't really change a man's relationship with God. You know, the Jews said, eat right and you'll go to heaven. But Christ sets us free from that kind of thinking. 
eat right, or you might get to heaven faster. But righteousness isn't a matter of what we put in our stomachs. Righteousness is all about what God puts in our hearts. You see, these Hebrews had come out of this sort of legalism, this sort of bondage. Got to eat this, can't eat this, that kind of thing. The writer warns them not to go back to that stuff. The menu for pleasing God and going to heaven is grace. Verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now remember, these Hebrew believers in Jesus, they were worried because they had been ostracized from the temple and from Judaism. They could no longer go and offer their animal sacrifice. But the folks who should be worried are those within the temple who are coming to the animal altar. Bulls and goats were inferior to the sacrifice of Jesus. It's best to eat the bread of life at the altar of faith than it is to go back to the temple altar. He says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Study the Old Testament sacrifices, and you'll see that they speak clearly of Jesus. And here's a prophetic detail that foretold the end of Judaism. You see, after the animals were sacrificed, their carcasses were taken outside the camp of Israel and they were burned. This meant that the ultimate end for sin would occur outside the camp, outside the borders of Judaism. This is why in God's providence, Jesus was crucified north of Jerusalem, outside the city walls at a place called Golgotha. It was all prophetic that the end of our sin, the final solution for our sin, would come outside the camp of Judaism or outside the religion. It would come through Jesus Christ and His work alone. The writer concludes, Therefore let us go forth to Him outside the camp, bearing His reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. The author of Hebrews is encouraging these Jewish believers to leave behind their Judaism, the camp of Judaism. Since Jesus died outside the boundaries and priestly jurisdiction of Judaism, believers in Jesus should renounce their need for the laws and the sacrifices and the rituals and rest their faith solely in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And this applies not only to Jews, but to anyone who's prone to get entangled in performance-based religion. you got to do this. you got to do that. You can't do this. You can't do that. Christianity is not performance-based religion. It's faith-based and it's grace-based. And it's hard to trust in grace and live by faith when you're surrounded by a legalistic culture that demands that you do. You'll never live truly, freely, until you leave the camp and come to Jesus. Verse 15, Therefore by Him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. If you live under the new covenant and you still want to offer a sacrifice, that's okay, but here's the one you should offer, the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Jesus did our way with our need for animal sacrifices. Now we offer God a sacrifice whenever we open up our mouths and we praise Him and give Him thanks and sing, in, sing His of His grace.
And here are two other New Testament sacrifices. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Good deeds and generosity are also ways that you can make a sacrifice to the Lord. If you want to thank God for His grace and His many blessings, then do good for someone else and give give God an offering. Verse 17. And obey those who rule over you and be submissive. You know, today's church is not just in need of good leaders. We are also in need of good followers. A good follower knows that his pastor is human. And yet, he or she trusts God to work through the pastor. They trust God's wisdom. They embrace the pastor's vision. You see, as long as a leader is biblical in his teaching, moral in his conduct, and ethical in his handling of people and money, then a good follower sees it as their duty to submit and to support the pastor. Did you realize that if you have a pastor who's biblical in his teaching, moral in his living, and ethical in his handling of people and money, you could do a lot worse? Did you know that? Don't give him a hard time about the color of the carpet or where he puts the water cooler or all the other trivial things that church members so often gripe about. It's been said, the person who can't lead and won't follow makes a dandy roadblock. Don't be a roadblock. The problem in churches today is the pastor's path is full of roadblocks. Leaders can't lead if members won't follow. You know, as a kid, one of our favorite games was follow the leader. Did you ever play that? Follow the leader. A lot of fun. But as adults, our attitude shifts. Cynicism makes it more difficult for us to follow the leader. A leader somewhere along our path disappoints us. We learn that all leaders have clay feet. But if we're to please God, if we're to be all that He wants us to be as a church, this is the game that we really need to learn to play again and take seriously. As with any army, God has a chain of command, and we need to function accordingly. Realize it's not an easy job to be entrusted with spiritual leadership. Notice the writer of Hebrews says that spiritual leaders watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Wow, that's a big deal. Do you realize that when Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain gets called to the judgment seat of Christ, the first person to give an account will be me? You're going to come up one by one and God's going to look at me and say, well, what about that, Pastor Sandy? You were, you were their overseer. You were, you, you were the one who was given the responsibility to look out for their soul. Wow. According to James 3 verse 1, as your teacher, I will incur a stricter judgment. I have a heavy responsibility. Which brings up another reason that you should follow the leader. He continues, let them do so. That is, watch out for your souls with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. In other words, you don't want to make a pastor's job more stressful than it already is. It's not in the church member's best interest to have a pastor who doesn't like to come to work. Trust me, if a pastor gets discouraged, if his heart is not in what he's doing, he won't be a very good pastor, and it's the church that will suffer. Reminds me of the mom who walked into her son's room one Sunday morning to wake him up for church. 
She shook him and she said, now come on, Johnny. It's time to go to church. It's Sunday morning. The son run, rolled over and he complained. He said, oh, mom, do I have to go to church every Sunday? She replied, of course you do, Johnny. You're the pastor. That's not the kind of attitude a congregation wants to cultivate in their pastor. If a church wants to encourage its pastor, they're told how in verse 18. Pray for us. For we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. Again, pray for your pastor. His job is to maintain his integrity. Your job is to lift him up in prayer. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Apparently, the writer of Hebrews plans to visit the church in the near future. And finally, he closes his thoughts and composes a benediction. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep. Isn't that great? Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. And pastors are under-shepherds. They serve Jesus, the great shepherd. He says, Now may God, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight. Notice, we're to work out what God works in. This is how Christianity works. God works it in, then we work it out. But it's always God who initiates. It's always all about grace. Our covenant, our relationship with God is based on the blood and the work of Jesus Christ, not our own works. Our goodness is a byproduct of the work that He's done for us and in us. This life that we live is lived through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 22. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you, in few words. Boy, the book of Hebrews has taken us a couple of months now in 13 chapters. But you know, compared to what could have been written, it was few words. It was a short letter. For remember the subject. <laughs> the superiority of Jesus Christ. Wow. That could have been an infinite subject. He could have written for that forever and ever and ever. Verse 23. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Apparently the author of the book of Hebrews had been writing this letter from Rome, probably to the church back in Jerusalem. Verse 25. Grace be with you all. Amen. And there we have the book of Hebrews. What a wonderful book.